The Jodcast, 100% typo-free, with George Bendo, Indy Leclerc, Josie Peters, Hannah Stacey, and Prabhu Yagaraj. The Jodcast, February 2015 Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Indy, and I'm in the studio with George and Hannah. Hi, guys. Hello. In the show this time, we interview Professor Chris Lintott about the Zooniverse Citizen Science Project, and Ian McDonald answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Prabhu Tyagaraj interviews Dr. Boswati Bhattacharya about the search for nature's best clocks in this month's Jodbite. Bashwati Bhattacharya is our Marie Curie International Incoming Fellow to the University of Manchester to the School of Physics and Astronomy. Welcome, Bashwati Bhattacharya, to the interview. Thank you. You are working on an exciting project known as Clocks and Bursts. Can you tell us what this project is about? This project is named Searching for Nature's Best Clocks and Transient Millisecond Bursts with Arrays of Telescopes. So you are searching for some kind of stars? Yes, these are pulsars. How do you search for them and what are the parameters that you look for when you do this search? Pulsars are extremely precise clocks. That's why I said the name of the project is Searching for Nature's Best Clock. So the stability with which the pulsars emit pulses is around 10 to the power minus 19 second per second. So like a trillion billion second per second. So it is so precise that it can beat any very good atomic clock which is available here in Earth. So uh, pulsars are basically rapidly rotating and the rotation is so rapid that it can beat even the kitchen blender's typical speed. And they are very highly magnetized. If you compare with Earth's magnetic field, then it is maybe 100 billion times the Earth magnetic field is the magnetic field of pulsars. So they are basically nothing but a compact star called neutron star. And the neutron stars are remnant of the very massive stars after they die. The size is around 15 kilometers. And in that 15 kilometer radius or size, they have the mass similar to or maybe more than sun's mass. So you can think of how dense it will be. So you may imagine that it is like a mass of Mount Everest in a teaspoon. Oh. So such massive stars are pulsars. So now when this massive star rotates, the observer and, and the beams from the pulsars cuts the observer line of sight, you will see one pulse from it. So, depending on how rapidly the pulsar is rotating around its axis, you will see the pulses period will change. That means there will be some on and off period when you are constantly looking at the object. So, study of such exotic object is very, very interesting as you can see and you will get a very compact, dense matter in a such high magnetic field and very exotic temperature and pressure. So, this will provide you a laboratory to study extreme matters in space and wow. this kind of condition you will not be able to create in your earth. So, having such exotic conditions it is possible to study extreme matter physics. Wonderful. Yeah. It's like you have your laboratory in the space and you do an extreme physics experiments. Wonderful. What kind of instrument that you have to still depend on for looking at these extreme objects? So these extreme objects are 
right now we have around 2300 pulsars and one variety of pulsars they are very fast rotating and we have about 300 of this flavor of pulsar uh, but the thing is some of these objects are very faint so you will need very powerful radio telescopes to detect them and search for them and having more and more of these objects will provide you naturally extreme laboratories to study them you, you mean uh, discovering more of these uh, will provide uh, very good yes discovering more of these objects is very important in the sense of studying individual extreme objects and also as a combination they can tell you a great deal of information about how the gravitational wave is affecting their signals and that way there is a way to detect gravitational wave signals by studying pulsars so does it mean you also encountered any major discoveries on your work so far yes generally the search of pulsars can be divided in different classes one class that we are doing is blind searches where what you do is you search in different portion of sky where you do not know whether there is pulsar or not so you are searching blindly so for that your telescope's field of view matter you should have quite large field of view and you are searching for pulsars in that kind of search what i am carrying out right now and in this part of the search is done with the team of scientists in the jodrell bank center for radio astrophysics and there we are doing very high resolution search that is a very fine time and frequency resolution search and also there can be kind of search which are targeted search where you are targeting the specific region where you have prior information from some other wavelength or maybe some supernova or something has happened and you are targeting that part of the sky for detecting pulsars so that is called targeted searches both these kind of searches i am involved in and there have been six discoveries from the blind wow. searches and seven discoveries from the targeted searches wonderful wonderful so would you tell about uh, or, or what uh, what importance that carry to the science these discoveries these discoveries are i would say very important because individual interesting objects and also because these discoveries are increasing the populations of pulsars in the known regime as i can say that it is predicted that there will be 30000 pulsars in the sky and as of now around 2000 is known so we wow. are yet to discover many many such faint objects and for that the instrument with which we are discovering matters so right now what uh, we are doing is we are doing this search with gmrt which is a telescope in india it has 30 telescopes and each with 45 meter diameter spread in area of 25 km and these telescopes collect signals and they can be added and it can act like a very big single dish because pulsars are so faint object the regime with which you can search with individual single dish is probably getting exhausted and having big arrays of telescopes smaller telescopes which combined can give you a very high collecting area is the future for pulsar search that is the square kilometer array is getting built it is a big array of telescope which is the future for pulsar search and we think that with the gmrt what we are doing which is also an array of telescope will be kind of test bed for some techniques which will be in future applied to ska wow that's really wonderful So you 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 mentioned that you have made discoveries of new pulsars 
having discovered them how you felt having seen these pulsars for the first time uh, this is really a unique feeling because uh, you spend lots of lots of effort in discovering so you gather lot of data and then look at the individual pulses and then look at the candidates and then maybe when you are very fortunate and everything is well you get one pulsar and uh, this is very interesting and this is even more interesting when you continue your study with that pulsar and see that this object is really unique and i will say each and every pulsar have something to tell us so something unique is there so deeper study of the object that i have discovered is giving us useful scientific information with which we are probing more and more towards the unknown is a very good feeling that's what i can say have you yeah. encountered any major uh, hurdles in this work or what's the complexity of the effort involved in the sense of hurdle in the current uh, data rate is one of the thing that we need to keep up with because we generate data very fast it is like uh, 100 gb per hour and we observe for hours and hours days and days so we have lots of data and we need to manage those data we need to back up the observations in the observing tapes we need to put those back in the high end computing facility so another thing is computing facility because we are in the pulsar search we need to search for the time for between the two consecutive pulses which we receive which is generally termed as pulsar period so this is one dimension of the search there is another dimension which is determined by where the pulsar is in the sky that is between you and the pulsar there is this interstellar medium and depending on what is the proper direction where the pulsar is the signal from the pulsar arrives to you at different time at for different frequency that it lower frequency signals get bit delayed so this property is called the dispersion delay and that can be characterized by having a quantity which is called dispersion measure which is nothing but the integrated electron density between you that is the observer and the pulsar so generally when you are searching for pulsar you are searching in two dimensions in period and in dispersion measure but one additional dimension comes which is the way in which this period change i have said the period is very precise about 10 to the minus 19 second per second but there there may be some variations which is coined by sometimes the pulsars are in binaries that is it, it is having some kind of companion with it and it is rotating with the companion because of its rotation around the companion its period gets modified and by studying that modification of the period you can determine the orbit in which it is rotating around the companion so the third parameter comes which is determined by the derivative of the period so this three dimensional pulsar search is very very computationally intensive and that's why you need high performance computing systems to search pulsars like we use the hydra supercomputing system here in jodhpur bank and also we use one supercomputing system which is there in india and with this i can say 15 minutes of data pulsar data to analyze this in supercomputing systems it takes about 5 hours now if you consider if you are doing this analysis in your high end desktop very high end desktop it will take at least 5 days and so you can consider that how computationally extensive it is when you said there are many dimensions in which you have to search for pulsar 
you did mention a term dispersion measure. So, is that something that you can tell us about what it is? Yes. So dispersion measure is uh, determined by the medium that is there between pulsar and EOSF. So this is the interstellar medium and the pulsar signal is coming through the interstellar medium to the observer and in the process the low frequency signal that is coming from the pulsar gets delayed in respect to the high frequency signal. So this delay needs to be corrected. So for that we need to have the information how the medium is and that is characterized by the dispersion measure which is nothing but the integrated electron density between yourself that is the observer and the pulsar. Wow, this is like you correct for the signal transmission path complexities that signal is encountering, you're correcting for it while you're searching for them. Yes, we need to correct for them to increase your detection significance. So, is there also any other noise that you have to worry about while you are processing for these signals? Yes, when you talk about hurdles, that is one of the biggest hurdles because you get man-made interference from the mobile and from various other sources. So, majority of effort in searching for pulsar goes in removing all these interference and keeping the signal which is only due to pulsar. That's how we can find out the signal for pulsars otherwise it will get buried under the interference which are not from any object in the sky but made in art. So do you search for them in a manual way or is there any automated way you can search for them? Yeah, there is all the major telescopes are right now searching for pulsars and from ages there are techniques that have been developed for searching for pulsars and those techniques are getting propagated and we are all using the techniques which our senior researchers have been using and they are modifying these techniques constantly and what is happening is a big uh, collaborative effort is going on in search of pulsars. Wow. Do you foresee any unexpected results from this, some kind of a serendipitous results which may make the work usable across the spectrum of science or other fields? Yeah, one thing is what I have said that extreme condition, in extreme condition how the matter will behave, that we could be predicting by study of pulsars and other branches of astronomy also the study of pulsars will provide input because as I have already told an array of pulsars can be used to uh, detect the gravitational wave. Wow. So these kind of things uh, can be like interdisciplinary inputs to other astronomy branches can be useful. So Bhaswati Bhattacharya, being awarded a Marie Curie Fellowship is a prestigious achievement. It is an international recognition of a fellow's work and potential for contributing to new scientific development. Receiving a fellowship can have a profound effect on a career development of a fellow, giving them a chance to experience new ideas, work experiences and approaches and working with researchers. Can you tell us something more about this fellowship? Thank you first for recognizing this, my getting this fellowship. This fellowship is a fellowship by European Union and this is a very, uh, I would say, good opportunity to extend one's uh, research expertise because first of all it supports research in another country and it also has scopes if one wants to in between go to one's own country and have some intermediate phase and come back to another country. And also this fellowship you have a research grant with which you can buy equipment which I, I will be spending on having high computing facilities here in Jodhpur Bank and as well as it gives you travel grant. So this is very good uh, and it has helped me a lot. This fellowship has another advantage that it can be taken uh, 
any time after phd because some of the fellowship have the constraint that you have you have to take after few years of the phd so it can even be taken when you are experienced researcher wonderful do you have something to say to the young aspirants who may be working on in the similar field how they may get into such a research experience i would encourage continuing research with patience and persistence and type management everybody knows is one of the key thing and also looking for opportunity where there is opportunity to take that and uh, not constrain yourself only in one thing explore different things thank you bashwadi and finally i would like to know why do you do what you do because i like to do i love to do yeah and uh, as of pulsars these are very exotic objects and they have tremendous untapped potential to study so i like this field very much thank you bashwadi padacharya for being with us today we wish you the very best for your career thank, thank you, you. Thanks for that, Prabhu. Now, Josie interviews Professor Chris Lintot about the Zooniverse project. In the studio today, we have with us Professor Chris Lintot. Welcome back to the Jugcast. Thank you. It's always great to be here. Uh, this is actually a record-breaking interview, as you are now with us for the sixth time. You are officially the most interviewed person on the Jugcast. That's genuinely an enormous honour. I expect a hat or or cape. I know. Or we, some we, sort should, of yeah, we should have got you some sort of special but, trophy, but um. I, I'll carry a trophy in my mind. It's particularly nice to be in the studio, which um, I trashed last time I was here. So I will st- sit very still and try not to break anything. <laughs> but thank you. It's good That's to be cool. back. Uh, so you're here today at the University of Manchester, and you're going to give a talk on your big citizen science project, the Zooniverse. Uh, we managed to grab a short interview with yourself and Dr. Rob Simpson at NAM 2012. But for new listeners, could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, well, citizen science is actually this really old idea, which really shouldn't be controversial. But the idea is that anyone can do science, that you don't need to be sitting in a nice university building like this one to tell us something new about the universe or about the earth or, or about whatever you're interested in, really. And if you go back to the 19th century, this is how science was done. People would contribute uh, whatever they knew and, and you know, eventually it would filter through into the professional literature. Uh, for most of the 20th century, we seem to have got stuck in the idea that science was to be done by professionals, you know, people in white coats with bubbling liquid and that sort of thing, or astronomers sitting on top of a mountain with a blackboard or something. Um, so citizen science is really about breaking down those barriers and getting everyone involved in doing useful stuff. Our, our particular flavour of it involves classifying things, making use of the fact that humans are really good at pattern recognition. In particular, we're really good at getting distracted by odd and unusual things. Uh, so if you take those two things together, and, and you can get enough people, then you have the ability to sort through huge modern data sets and discover the unusual and the interesting. We did that first with a project called Galaxy Zoo, which is for my own research, looking at the shapes of galaxies. But now we do everything from um, penguin hunting, sorry, penguin watching, it's important, the, the zoologists <laughs> always get upset, um, through to particle physics. Um, and, and they all come together under this, this banner of the Zooniverse. Yeah, it's really good fun. I mean, I've, I uh, had a bit of a go at Asteroid Zoo quite a lot last year, and I found it was farly like, the most useful way I've ever procrastinated. Yes, um. no, I think that maybe that's the better way. That's the short answer to your first question is this is useful procrastination, uh, which is essential. Asteroid Zoo is great. It's, 
our attempt to try and find near-Earth asteroids and make sure we've got them all, really. So you could save the world with asteroids. You probably won't, but you could, which is exciting. <laughs> Would you say that um, any of the projects are more popular than the others, or do you have a favourite that you're most excited about? I think uh, it's certainly true that the astronomy projects do very well, which is good news for Jogcast listeners, I think. So, and also probably because we started with Galaxy Zoo. I think the one that's most surprisingly popular to me, is Planet Hunters, which looks at data from a satellite called Kepler and and tries to spot when there's a planet going in front of its parent star. And this essentially means looking at graphs for a hobby. And if you read any book on science communication, it will tell you that you shouldn't use graphs, that people don't understand them and that they're tools of scientific communication but not how to communicate to a wider audience. And yet something like 20 million graphs have been viewed on wow. Planet Hunters, and we've, we've made independent discoveries of hundreds of planets and found some really interesting ones along the way. So the fact that Planet Hunters is so popular still uh, surprises me. We've just um, put some new data in, by the way. So, oh, so there should be a new crop of planets waiting for people if people want to go around the time that this episode goes out. Yeah, um, so, so Planet Hunters is surprisingly popular. Astronomy is good. My favourite? It's a bit like trying to pick between your children, you know. Yeah. But I like Plankton Portal. There are these amazing, it's an amazing camera. So friends of ours in Florida go out, biologists go out, and they, they lower the special camera into the water. And what it does is it takes shadow pictures, so it gets an incredibly bright, mm. bright flash, and then they record the shadows that appear on a white surface. And what you get is silhouettes of all of these beautiful little microorganisms, the plankton, that form the basis of the ecosystem. And they're in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and Plankton Portal shows you these images. Uh, and asks you to classify them. So I've ended up learning quite a bit about plankton. The only problem with that project is that every time they take the boat out, they come back with another 10 million images. Wow. So we really (laughs) need some more help. Um, How can I persuade people to do plankton? The alien from Alien, that shape is based on one of the plankton that you can see in Plankton Portal. I've never found one, but I really want to find one in there somewhere. So so Plankton Portal's cool too. So lots and lots of images. How big is this universe now? Typically, how many people do you get visiting? It depends on the project. So I think a a nice way of putting the overall effort is that the Zooniverse last year had about the same effort as if we'd employed 400 people round the clock to (laughs) classify things. And it's quite fun to think about it like that, because if you work it out, you have a large department of planet hunting with about 60 people in it, all the way down to one person in a room listening to Whale Song on a project called Whale FM. So the distribution isn't even, but it's about that sort of effort. When people get really excited, we can we can get results very quickly. So we ran a project called the Andromeda Project, mm-hmm. which was looking for star clusters in the Andromeda Galaxy, in a big Hubble survey of the Andromeda Galaxy. And something about that just got people. And we went through uh, millions of images in under a week, and the project was done. Wow. Uh, the paper's about <laughs> really to be great. accepted, which is pleasing. Um, that, when, did, when did that start? Uh, it ran once, about this time of year, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and then it shut down, and then we had some more data about a year ago. And the catalogue paper by a guy called Cliff Johnson, who's at the University of Washington, is a, it, it, the referee was very kind about it, so it should be accepted uh, very soon, which is kind of exciting. And so that project, I think that idea that you can get a million people, or get a million images classified in just a few days, is really exciting, because it opens up the possibility of being able to do this for live data. So um, keeping an eye on the kind of data that might come from future telescopes, and, and using citizen scientists, or working with citizen scientists, to say when things change. Mm-hmm. in real time and then be able to do something about it that begins yeah. to feel very exciting i think and much more dynamic than we normally think of astronomy being 
Yeah, because he had the um, the SETI Live project, which has mm. recently stopped being live. But um, yeah, do you have any other plans for similar? Yeah, the SETI one was was sadly crippled by funding. So um, the idea there was exactly this. So you have a signal from the uh, Allen Array, which is the SETI Institute's network of 42, I think it really is 42, telescopes. We displayed the data in an interesting form and told people to mark anything that looked unusual. The idea was that if you marked something, it would immediately be shown to the next few people on the site if they agreed mm-hmm. with you that we'd trigger the telescope to go back to that source and we could follow up. Because most SETI searches, things like SETI, at home, the screensaver that sorts through this stuff. Their big problem is they do find interesting stuff. Probably not aliens, but we're not sure because by the time they go back, the source is gone. And so it's very hard for SETI to work with archive data because um, even the false positives, the astronomical signals or the transients on Earth that mimic SETI disappear pretty quickly. So you've got to yeah. find them in real time. So that was great. We just about got it working. We found, and we went through, we didn't find any aliens, but um, we found some interesting stuff and we helped them refine their models of what was getting in the way, sort of the interference, and they ran out of money to operate the, the telescopes in, in this sort of live manner. So, so that was sad. But, but it's a good template for what we want to do. I think um, we've run supernova hunting projects in the past, uh, and I'm sure we will again. I've been thinking a lot about a telescope called LSST, which mm-hmm. is the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which desperately needs a new name. But but LSST, if if you subscribe to the feed that will give you everything, it's a survey telescope, uh, co- start coming online in 2018. If you subscribe to the feed that will give you things that have changed since the last time LSST viewed that particular bit of the sky, you'll get a conservative estimate is about two and a half million alerts a night. Wow. And so then you have to think about what you do with two and a half million alerts. Yeah. And if you want to study boric I mean, if you want to study common <laughs> stuff, routine stuff, if you want a sample of type 2b supernovae, or you want a sample of dwarf novae, or you want a sample of our ally variable stars, well, that's fine. We can probably write a computer program to find you a larger sample of type 2b supernovae than we've ever had before. Uh, and it won't matter that you miss some because you've already got more than, than you've ever had before. If you want to understand whether there's unusual stuff, stuff in that data, whether there are supernovae that are misbehaving, whether there are variable stars that look a little like RR Lyries or other types, but but not quite, that's much harder to do automatically. And so I think what we want to build is a system where the data comes from LSST. We make a decision automatically about whether computers can handle it or whether we need a citizen scientist, and then we send people an alert. So putting putting humans back at the eyepiece Okay. It's one way to think about it, and, and it's really exciting. Yeah, because I've heard about the Swift spacecraft where they get the alerts in the middle of the night to go and quickly go that's and right. observe anything exciting that's happening, so yeah. this would be a similar... That's right. I mean, there's this old story that um, gamma-ray astronomers were amongst the first people to get mobile phones. Oh, wow. Because gamma-ray <laughs> astronomy and those big sort of... 80s satellite phones took off at the same time and so you'd get your alert but but swift maybe triggers an alert every night so it's one a night so it's fine to have your phd student or postdoc get woken up at 3 a.m to deal with to to decide whether to follow up if you're getting two and a half million alerts coming out you you both need to be better about filtering them by computer but you've got to keep open this space for serendipitous discovery you Mm -hmm. can't just rely on uh, machine learning to to find the conventional, because astronomy has always progressed by whenever we opened up a new wavelength or looked at a different time domain or viewed the sky in a different way, a lot of the excitement has always been the stuff we didn't expect. And if we don't keep humans in the loop of the data processing, then we won't be able to to make those discoveries as easily. 
Because, for example, you had um, the discovery of Hanny's Vuvert yes. before. Um, have you had any other notable or unexpected discoveries? Yeah, tons of them. The Vorverp is infamous, but um, we were just... Um, there's a paper out yesterday, which is a really nice sort of semi-serendipitous discovery. It's a spiral galaxy with large radio jets coming out perpendicular mm. to the disk. It's only the fourth spiral galaxy with such large jets. Um, so if you just saw the jets, if you just looked at the radio, you'd be convinced that there must be an elliptical galaxy at the centre. It's the mm. kind of thing we see from M87, from big galaxies. And yet here this thing is with these jets that extend for, where are we, about 130,000 light years from the centre of the galaxy. And it's, it's a very odd object, and, and we're not sure why it's behaving like this. Whether it's lucky, it could be a merger of two galaxies that somehow has has been a massive merger, but on in exactly the right angle, so so as to preserve the spiral disk and not create elliptical, and yet fuel the OGN. So that's one possibility. Second possibility is that this is an elliptical having a bad day, and that okay. something's <laughs> happened to it, which has made it create spiral arms. If that happens, then that tears up a lot of what we know about galaxy morphology, but it's a possibility. And then the third option, which I really like, is that maybe... The other thing that's special about this galaxy is it's in quite a crowded neighbourhood. It's in a dense part of the universe, on the edges of a cluster, in fact. And so maybe there's something about how it's interacting with its environment that's meant it's got more than its fair share of fuel and that it, it's doing this ADN. So, uh, again, that's, it's not you know a revolutionised astronomy, but it's mm-hmm. something that we didn't think to look for. And none of the radio surveys had picked up the fact that there was anything special about this. It was there as a radio source, and people saw the two jets. But until you look and you notice that it's a spiral, yeah. you don't realise there's anything unusual. So that's just the most recent example, but there, there, are, there are loads of these. We just launched a project with the Large Hadron Collider called Higgs Hunters, which is exactly this. It's looking for anomalies for things that the LHC weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. And Higgs Hunters will almost certainly fail to find anything interesting. But anything it does find will completely revolutionise the physics and probably win a Nobel Prize. And on day one, not even sure, I, I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell this story, but never mind. But on day one, we got an email from a guy called Alan Barr, who's the PI of Higgs Hunters. He's the particle physicist in charge. He's from the Atlas collaboration, so one of the big experiments at CERN. And his email said something like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, we found this thing and this is not standard model physics. And I don't remember putting this in the simulations yeah. that we put into the site. And it was what appeared to be at first glance, a jet, a directed jet of particles called muons, which okay. had been predicted, but yeah. not discovered. Now it turns out that when we looked at the data, it was what they call a punch out. So there were normal particles that had escaped the inner ring that was supposed to detect them. But for a minute, we entertained the brief possibility that on day one we'd yeah, overturn standard physics. Um, but that's the kind of thing, right? So most of those will turn out to be nonsense. But at the minute, no one's tracking. And and so there will be astronomical equivalents of that there too, particularly in transients that we would like to follow up on. It's amazing how um, the public can get involved because often some people can feel sort of quite detached from science and think it's, you know, just scientists and, and everything in lab coats, as you said. Whereas Paul Verpen was saying before, is like a Dutch school teacher. Well, we can show yeah, that we can show that that Galaxy Zoo does things to you if you take part. I really? Mean, yeah. No, we can. <laughs> I mean, not. I don't mean that quite as sinisterly as that sounded. But what I love about these projects is that they reach an audience who aren't committed scientists already. So when we built the first project, we thought we were going to get amateur astronomers to take part, and amateur astronomers are helpful and and and, and do help us out. But it's mostly people who've never really given much thought to science who are taking part. And we can show that participation in the Zooverse means that you learn stuff about science and about 
galaxies if you take part in galaxy zoo. But the really cool thing about that is that you learn stuff that we don't tell you. So people gain galaxy knowledge from Galaxy Zoo that, that isn't written on the site, that isn't there. And so what's happening, I think, is that Galaxy Zoo is inspiring people to go and do their own research, to go and read more about science. It's turning people in some way into scientists, all right, citizen scientists, rather than anyone with a salary. But that's exactly what we want. And and goes back to where I started, you know, about breaking down this idea that you have to be a, a professional scientist, somebody in a lab coat, to do any mm. of this stuff. That's fantastic. I mean, I see the Zooniverse now has a jobs page. Have you had any participants that have just loved it so much that they've managed to make themselves part of the team? A few. The one I should mention is my PhD student, Becky Smithhurst, okay. who did Galaxy Zoo when she was in school. Oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> and is now a PhD student with, with us in Oxford. So, so that does two things. One is I tell that story all the time because it's an mm -hmm. example of somebody who's inspired to go into astronomy by Galaxy Zoo. And the second thing it does is it makes me feel incredibly old. Because the idea that somebody who was at school when Galaxy Zoo started is now a PhD student is upsetting. But yeah. but that's fine. I'll, I'll get over that. Last time you were here, it was almost five years ago at Jodcast Live. and um, That was such a good good event. It um, was the, the best thing about it was that the Jodcast crew had no idea that they were famous. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that's, this crew of people, who was mostly the people who'd started the Jodcast, turned up not expecting that anyone would know who they were. And yeah. there were all these people going, oh, my God, it's Stuart. It's Jen and not knowing how to talk to them. And, and watching them experience that was just beautiful. Wow. It was great. Yeah, I've heard some people get their voices recognised when they go to NAMM. Yes. Um, that's really fun. But yeah, you mentioned that the number of Galaxy Zoo participants in Manchester had dropped at the time. I hope we're back up to speed again now. You um, know, I haven't looked. <laughs> I will look and let you know. And if not, then I'm blaming the Jogcast. Because okay. so, six well, I've been on six times and it's still yeah, not exactly. working. So. But yeah, the, the stats must be really interesting actually finding out where people are doing this from. I mean, do you find it's got more attention in certain countries than others? Yeah, it's mostly it's about a third UK and a third US, which is a function mm -hmm. of sort of where we are, but also where our, our press has been. We, we've just started really trying to translate the site. So we've always had a, a sizable Polish contingent because we translated mm -hmm. the sites into Polish. Basically, because this wonderful group of astronomers in Poland threatened to kill me if I didn't let them okay. <laughs> have to have their own version. So, so that was very helpful. We're now crowdsourcing the transcription so people can come and volunteer their time by transcribing into French or translating into French mm -hmm. or German or Spanish or Dutch or whatever it is. Indeed, we've got um, Galaxy Zoo in Mandarin now, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. So that will help, I think, make it a more global thing. It's interesting to me when people classify. So, so mm. it used to be the case that Europeans took part in these projects at lunchtime and Americans oh. waited till they got home from work. But everyone is now an, <laughs> it's a now an evening thing. It's people oh. sitting, I think, in front of the TV or the laptop yeah. in the evening to, to doing something that's useful, but but vaguely relaxing. Yeah, not too stressful, but exactly. you're actually yeah, making a contribution. Uh, now, I'm sure a lot of the Jodcast listeners will have watched the Rosetta special of The Sky at Night. The feeling landing was like, incredibly exciting. Uh, here we had our own little gathering, watching it all on the big screen, all biting our nails. Uh, you were actually at Mission Control when it happened. What was the atmosphere like? It was fabulous. It was just so wonderful to be amongst a group of people who'd worked that hard for something that risky and have it pay off. I don't know who I felt more for, the people who'd spent 20 to 25 years of their lives on this project, or the people who just joined it and needed data in order to keep their jobs. 
because the postdocs and, and students who are going to analyze the data, you know, if there's no data, then there's sadly no need for postdocs. So both sets were, were really excited. It, it's hard, I think, to remember how long the planning for this project had been. And the thing that helps me is Colin Pillinger, who people know, of course, as the PI of Beagle 2, led the development of the Ptolemy instrument on Rosetta before he did Beagle 2. So that gives you an idea of how long ago the planning for this thing started. And uh, people were just, just ecstatic. There was, there's some interesting tensions, of course, because there are loads of scientists who have cameras and instruments on board Rosetta itself. Mm-hmm. And they just wanted Phil A to go in the nicest possible way, like yeah. giving a lift to a friend who suddenly decides that you should go specifically all <laughs> yeah. the way to their house. Let's I think see you they later. Were... Let, let us get our data now. <laughs> exactly, and a delay. So if Phil had, had not been able to be released, there would have been a 19-day delay before they could try again, and then a few weeks to get back into an orbit. So Rosetta would have lost six to seven weeks of, of data. Gosh. And they're using that time now, because it's gone, to, to map the comet in great detail, mm-hmm. which they have to do before it becomes more active and, and Rosetta has to, yeah. to, to keep its distance. So that was great. And then the, there was all the emotion and, and sort of confusion about what was going on, because we thought it had landed and we thought the harpoons had attached it to the surface. And then they noticed it was rotating. So mm-hmm. for a little while, we were being told both that it was attached to the surface and that it was rotating. And that turns out not to be compatible. Uh, and then there's this bounce, and then this the team announced with the beautiful line that um, they set out to land on a comet, and they seem to have managed to do it three times, <laughs> which I thought was a nice That's a nice way of phrasing Exactly. It. <laughs> but then just as we, we worked that out, they lost signal from the lander because Rosetta had, had essentially gone over the horizon. And so we then had... 12, 14 hours of, of not knowing what was going on. So back to nail-biting tension again. Yeah, yeah. And then the first morning, and then the data started flowing, and there was this whole thing about... I think maybe the most interesting bit, I'm not sure it came across on the programme, but it was watching the discussions about what to do with the 60 hours that they knew they had on the surface. It became apparent pretty quickly that the odds of it staying awake of being able to recharge its batteries were pretty low. Uh, and so there are all these discussions about what you do and don't do in those circumstances. Will they drill? What's the risk if they use the drill that the thing falls over? Should they use the hammer to prod at the surface? Could they rotate fillet on its legs? At one point, they were talking about trying to hop and see if oh, they wow. could hop into the middle of uh, a sunlit patch. Yeah, because yeah, I heard they were worried about trying to set off the harpoons or anything in case it just shot back off into space. Exactly. And, and also, I mean, they think it's at an angle of greater than 45 degrees. So you, I think you have to worry that you might topple yourself over. Uh, Maggie Adair, in my co-presenter, and I mm-hmm. had a very happy evening in a bar in, <laughs> in outside Cologne. Cologne, where the lander team were with straws trying to model the lander and work out exactly <laughs> what we would do. Um, but even down to the instrument teams as well, these decisions became incredibly important. So Ptolemy, for example, which is the British chemical lab, the OU-led chemical lab that was on board, had to decide. They knew they weren't going to have enough power to do everything that they wanted. And one of the decisions they had to negotiate with the rest of the fillet crew was, did they want a sample from the drill? They did eventually use the drill at the end. Or should they use that time to analyse the atmosphere that they'd collected? And they went for the latter. And Mm. just in the last few days, it seems to have paid off. So we haven't got scientific results, but they say they see a whole load of molecules in, in their mass spec, which is great. And it looks like... I don't think we know this for sure, but it looks like the drill didn't grab anything. So it extended, grabbed and pulled back, but maybe didn't reach the wall or didn't hit the cliff or whatever. And so that gamble is going to look like a very good long-term payoff, I think. Yeah. 
So it's great fun to watch. Just yeah. as a, just a, a as a, a fan of people doing amazing stuff, <laughs> it was just great to be in the same room. Uh, it's wonderful for the Sky Note to bring it more of the science and more of an interest to everyone as to what is actually going on in these sorts of really exciting yeah. spacecraft. Yeah, it didn't even kill well. us. Uh, because I don't know if it's obvious, but making an hour-long program in four days, which is what we did, is not normal. Yeah, so that's a very short time span. It is. It got a little silly. So people were turning up, pulling the memory cards out of the cameras that we'd just been filming in and then flying back to London so that wow. they could be edited. <laughs> and then we'd get requests back from the editors. So, you know, could Chris stand here and say this because we need to fit this in? And of course, the story kept changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it led to this slightly absurd situation in which I snuck back into mission control for the last signal. Um, they didn't want any cameras there. I think was an error, but never mind. But they let three of us back in just to tweet and to talk to the world about what was going on. And it was genuinely emotional. The scientists were all happy. They'd got their data. But for for those, you know, I think for those with a more romantic view of spaceflight, we were sitting there in this darkened control room watching the battery uh, drain away Mm -hmm. on on the main graph and and hearing the last, or seeing the last signals from Philae arrive. And, And it was deeply emotional. And I shed a tear or two, and so did other people. I was trying to talk on Twitter about what was going on. And then we realised if it survived another 20 minutes, then Rosetta would set again and we'd have to wait until midday the next day to find out whether it was alive or not. It would almost certainly be dead or at least sleeping. But we'd have to wait till midday the next day and that meant we couldn't film the next morning. And, then, and so there was the, I, I remember going very quickly from this sort of romantic, sort of plucky little lander, you know, yeah. and all that people yeah. and all that time to die. It's got to die now, please. <laughs> you know, while while we're yeah. there, it, it, sort of, it was a very strange experience, and, and it did. So, so it may yeah. be, actually it may be my fault, uh, but but at least that gave us a closure, and then we could finish the yeah, program and, and, and get it out. All right, there have been big surge in um, astronomy-based programs actually coming onto the BBC. So, with stargazing live getting very popular, various series of Brian Cox. Have you had a new influx of sky night watchers? Yeah, I think, well, the Skirt Knights had an odd few years, which I guess is obvious after um, we lost Patrick, what, nearly two years ago now. And so I think it's taken us time to find our feet and to to understand what the programme could be. wasn't so much that Patrick was a restriction. He was um, generous and to a fault and was happy mm-hmm. for the programme to do whatever was best. But every month we would gather at Patrick's and film in his... Mm-hmm study uh, and that gave us a format and then suddenly we could do anything we could go to Stonehenge for the solstice which we did which was bizarre um, <laughs> or we can wander the country and uh, we've, we've even been up to Jodrell a couple of times yeah. um, and, and so I think it's taken us time to, to find our feet and it took the time for the BBC to work out what they wanted to do with us as well but we now have this stable slot which is the second Sunday of the month on BBC4 but it's at an early slot it's 10.30 on yeah. most, most months and yeah, so yeah listening to one of the earlier um, 2007 interviews and they were saying that the time schedule was at 2am in the morning yes. so everything has improved a lot since then. Exactly, we're back to actually where Patrick started in 1957 oh, which was about a 10 o'clock slot <laughs> on the second channel so so yeah, so the audience is good and uh, hopefully people are enjoying it it's um, it's great fun to do No, it's, it's fantastic to watch um, and lastly, if a listener wants to get involved in the Zooniverse how do they go about that? They go to zooniverse.org and they pick a project I recommend Plankton but there are plenty of astronomy yeah. things as well um, <laughs> And Those I think what, radio favourites, maybe the Radio Galaxy Radio Zoo. Galaxy Zoo is very good. It's another place with lots of data, and I'll get killed for not having mentioned that. So yes, okay. Radio <laughs> Galaxy Zoo is the connoisseur's choice, oh. I think, because it you have to really... It makes you think about what you're seeing when you see a galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that the visible light 
really doesn't tell much of the story. So yeah, Radio Galaxy Zoo is good. But yeah, go experiment. I think that's what I'd say. Try a project. If it's not for you, then there will be others, either different type of subject matters. But we built easy projects and hard projects, projects with beautiful images and projects with data, mm-hmm. um, projects where it takes less than a second to do a classification and projects where you have to spend 10 minutes on a single single thing. So there will be something for everyone. And um, the only thing uniting them is that by doing any of them, you'll be making a contribution to science. Fantastic. Well, Jodcast listeners, get on it. Um, yes, we'll be checking. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It's uh, been an absolute delight to have you here for this record-breaking interview. See you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that, Josie. Now, it's on to those parts of the show we couldn't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So my odds and end is um, about the movie Interstellar, which you may have seen. I um, haven't, so don't spoil the ending. All right, I won't. Um, cracking film, cracking <laughs> so film. So in, in the movie, there's this um, rendering of a black hole, which um, looks really cool, but um, the guys that um, made it collaborated with a physicist named Kip Thorne in um, creating this visualisation of the black hole and its accretion disk, which is the matter that's spiralling into the black hole. Um, so they've gone and released a paper about this on the way that they've... Um, visualize the the black hole and they've seemed to have learned one or two things about it in the process so in the movie the the black hole you see the accretion disk is lensed by the gravitational field of the black hole so you can see the back of the accretion disk lensed over to the front of it so you can see the back from the front if that makes sense yeah it kind of it kind of wraps around it in a really cool way where the, the disk is both sort of on top and around uh, the black hole. So they describe this um, visualization as moderately realistic, because um, because it has to be understandable for the viewers as well. In the paper, they look at um, visualizing a more realistic black hole, and in this one, they also include sort of the way that the the light is Doppler shifted and gravitationally uh, distorted as well which is basically the effect of stretching out the the light. But uh, I think that looked less uh, visually appearing to the viewers because it was a lot darker. You couldn't um, detect the black hole in the middle as well. So the one in the movie is slightly less realistic, but it's still probably the most realistic visualisation of a black hole that we've ever seen on um, in a movie before, so it's pretty cool. So there was the 1979 film The Black Hole, which was produced by Disney, which also depicted the black hole, and uh, that had some sort of accretion disk type of thing in it, but everything in the movie was so unbelievably unrealistic <laughs> for okay. the most part. No, this is pretty cool. I mean, so so this was a paper that was published in, in like a, an astrophysical sort of pa- um, journal, Wait, was it? Or? This, this came out yesterday on uh-huh. Archive. Okay. Because what I heard was that basically they actually managed to get sort of two papers out of it. One was this sort of visualization and also essentially getting more info on on the behavior of an accretion disk because they solved all the relevant equations in this kind of really strong gravitational field using these massive, massive computers that belong to sort of Hollywood visual effects companies. The, the other paper they released or are going to release is, is more to do with the actual computer graphics side of things and, and how you'd actually program it all... Um, into their sort of algorithms and, and, and programs that, that compute the light rays, compute the trajectory of the whole thing. And apparently they had to sort of redesign some algorithms because of the sheer amounts of data that they were processing to make these scenes. So it's it's really cool when you get sort of 
real world science that comes out of, of a film. Um, yeah, it's good to see like the gravitational lensing actually included because I don't think you've seen that before really in movies. Well, it's one thing to include gravitational lensing; it's another thing to include realistic gravitational lensing. It's not. It's not that far off by the look of it. So, if you want to look it up on archive, it is one five zero two point zero three eight zero eight B one. So we'll we'll have a link to that in the uh, in the show notes on the website. In any case, so if you want to go have a look at the paper itself, you'd be more than welcome to. And just for people's references, it'll eventually appear in classical and quantum gravity. Good stuff. So, actually, moving from one film to another, uh, there's a cheeky little Star Wars reference in my and end uh, this time round. Uh, and it's a piece of news, uh, well, it's, it's actually a paper that's, um, JBCA's very own, uh, Gary Fuller has contributed to, where astronomers have basically caught a snapshot of a multiple star system as it's being created. And so it's a really interesting, uh, set of observations that, that give us new insight into how multi-star systems, uh, form, essentially. So, um, it's a bunch of scientists from, so the University of Manchester with Gary Fuller, um, Liverpool John Moores, and uh, and also other other institutes in Europe, including the uh, ETH um, Zurich, and so they use several telescopes, uh, radio telescopes, including the Very Large Array, the VLA in the US, the Green Bank Telescope, also in the US, and the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope, and they looked at a cloud of gas which is about 800 light years from Earth, um, and zooming into this sort of core of gas that contains uh, one ball of gas known as a protostar and also and three uh dense pockets of matter that they say are going to collapse into stars so kind of proto proto stars uh, over the next 40,000 years and so these are sort of basically four potential stars and after doing observations and and, and sort of modeling their eventual behavior the, the astronomers predict that three of those are actually going to form a stable uh triple star system and so um there's a, there's a reference to, to the planet Tatooine, which appears in the Star Wars series, which has two suns. And basically, that's a very similar system where, well, instead of two, you'd have three suns. Any planets in that, that, that eventually form in that system will, will sort of be engaged in this complex uh, gravitational ballet, uh, moving around, uh, three stars at once. I mean, in fact, astronomers reckon that almost, uh, half of all stars are, are in binary or, or, or multiple star system. But they've never actually managed to capture this sort of instant where where they're not quite formed and they're not quite in the system yet. And so by observing, by by, by catching this system and other systems at various stages of the development, it's going to be a great a great leap forward in our understanding of these multi-star systems. So essentially, they used the VLA to map radio emission from molecules of ammonia, and and they figured out that that uh, filaments of gas in this region they were looking at is called Barnard Five. Uh, which is in the Perseus constellation, B5, as it's abbreviated, was known to contain one young forming star, this protostar, but then they saw that filaments of gas are basically fragmenting within this, this star-forming region. These fractions of the filament are then contracting, and they're eventually going to form these other stars. And all of these little fragments, all of these pockets of dense gas, they're all gravitationally bound to each other, so eventually... A few, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years down the line, they're going to form a multiple star system. These, these so-called condensations uh, that are going to produce stars, at the moment they're sort of one-tenth to almost one-third of the mass of the Sun, and uh, and their separations are about 3,000 to 10,000 AU, so the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And so they reckon that the 
stars are going to form sort of a stable inner binary system. So two of the stars are going to be quite co- closely bound, and the third star is going to be orbiting that pair. So it's it's exciting stuff for the future, and then this uh, these observations are going to be published in the the next uh, edition of Nature. So big paper for uh, for Manchester's very own Gary Fuller. So do you think these stars are going to be um, high mass or low mass sort of stars? Um, masses? Gary likes to work with high mass stars. <laughs> like, I imagine he'd just have to stop doing research on this if they're too low in mass. <laughs> um, I'm not actually sure. They're not clear what the final masses of the stars are going to be, so uh, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that. But um, I think we're going to try and catch Gary and, and get him to do a job bite on this sometime soon because it's mm. a really interesting topic and we'd love to know more. Gary is doing a uh, lot of pioneering research uh, along with his collaborators in into this particular stage of star formation, which is still not well understood, which mm-hmm. is how do gas clouds fragment and form individual stars, yep. and actually identifying that stars are going to fragment into a binary system is really impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really important research, and it's really, really interesting. On the 11th of February, uh, the um, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration and NASA launched a satellite called the Deep Space Climate Observatory, or DISCOVER, uh, abbreviated without the I or E in DISCOVER, uh, from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Uh, they used a rocket provided by SpaceX, which is uh-huh. the uh, private uh, space agency. So Elon Musk's venture, yeah. Yes. And uh, this satellite will be traveling to a... Uh, place called L1. It's called the Lagrange Point. It's a location where the gravitational forces from the sun and the earth balance out, so uh, things that end up in the Lagrange Point stay in the stationary place. Uh, Once this spacecraft gets there, it's actually going to do a couple of different things. It has uh, three instruments. One of them will point at the sun. It's called Plasmag. That will be used to study uh, solar weather, including measuring solar wind and magnetic fields. The other two instruments will be pointing towards Earth. One is abbreviated N-I-S-T-A-R, and I don't know if that's supposed to be pronounced NISTAR or NISTAR. That will actually be measuring two things. One, the total amount of light reflected from the Earth, and two, the total amount of light emitted by the Earth in a spectrum ranging from the ultraviolet to the infrared. The other instrument is called EPIC, and it will be producing images of the Earth in multiple wave bands so that it can be used to uh, measure a variety of uh, things related to Earth's climate, which include uh, changes in cloud cover, uh, changes in ozone and aerosol amounts in the atmosphere, uh, variations in vegetation, and other types of things. One of the interesting things about the spacecraft is that it will be able to produce a a whole Earth image, which right now is actually very tricky to do. Although we have a lot of images of Earth from space, they're usually composite images, which are made by a lot of low-Earth altitude uh, satellites, which are taking snapshots of parts of the Earth. 
So this would be the equivalent of having something on your television screen and then walking up to the television screen so that you're only a couple of centimeters away and so that you only see part of the television screen rather than the entire thing and then moving around the television screen so that you hope that you see like the entire picture. Although the entire picture may change while you're sort of moving around the entire television screen. It's the same thing with satellites in space. This spacecraft is going to be very impressive because it can do an entire Earth image. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why this uh, spacecraft is interesting may not be quite so much for the science that's doing, and the way I've described it is kind of the low-key way that NASA and the NOAA are describing it, but actually because of the complex political history behind this. So the satellite was originally conceived by Al Gore in 1998, and uh, it originally came together as an idea after some brief discussion uh, with people from NASA. Part of the original concept was to uh, have a satellite, which was at this same position as where Discover is now, which would provide real-time images of the entire Earth's surface and then stream it to the Internet, which back in 1998 would have been a major technical achievement. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, these days, maybe it's not quite as exciting. Although it'd still be kind of interesting to have live, real-time images. I think it'd be pretty cool, yeah. The spacecraft, which is going to go out there, is actually going to produce images about once every two hours. So it'll still be pretty good. Eventually, the uh, science concepts for the telescope got enhanced, and uh, a major component of the uh, satellite's mission would be studying uh, the Earth's climate, which includes climate change. For reference, Al Gore was a Democrat. The Republican Party opposed this uh, project initially, and uh, there was a lot of controversy uh, surrounding this, including a couple of investigations into it. Al Gore, as many people know, also ran for president in 2000 against George W. Bush, who's a Republican. George W. Bush won, and then shortly afterwards, the uh, project was canceled. The spacecraft was put into storage at Guard Space Flight Center. After Barack Obama became president in 2009, the people at NASA and NOAA looked at reviving the program again. And uh, so over uh, the course of a few years, they were able to secure funding. They spent uh, a little bit of time refurbishing the telescope because it had been in storage for a very long time. And after a couple of delays... Uh, managed to get launched this year. One of the other final uh, notes to say about this launch is that SpaceX was also trying to use a reusable rocket. It was supposed to land near a barge in the Atlantic Ocean, but because of the rough seas, uh, the uh, SpaceX Corporation decided to just allow it to ditch into the ocean. It would be too difficult to uh, recover it. Uh, but still, it was kind of an interesting experiment in recovering uh, the rocket itself for reuse in later launches. Yeah, I think I think they had a previous one, uh, SpaceX, where they were, you know, still in this rocket recovery plan, and uh, and I, they missed the barge. So they're basically trying to essentially reland a piece of rocket on on a moving, floating barge in the sea, which is already fairly insane. And they got really close. They released some footage. I think it's find on Twitter, um, of this giant rocket booster kind of going down very slowly, and then only at the final minute it just kind of gets 
pushed to a side by a big gust of wind or the barge moves and, and it sort of crashes. And uh, I think that's already incredibly close and a really, really kind of impressive achievement. So I think they're going to make it eventually. Um, it's uh, it's really exciting that space travel and space flight um, is going to go places with, with sort of private endeavours now and it's really making leaps and bounds, so it's quite exciting. And now we're going to move on to something, uh, or someone rather, who's a lot less politically controversial. All your astronomical questions are being answered by Dr. Ian MacDonald in this month's Ask an Astronomer. Our first question comes from Great Old Mac, who asks, The textbooks state that sunspots have a lower temperature than the surface. If so, shouldn't they sink into the interior? So what pushes them up to the surface? Well, as most of you all know, sunspots are dark spots on the surface of the sun. They're not actually that dark, but they're darker than the surrounding surface of the sun by a factor of about 3 to 13. The, the reason they glow less brightly is because they're colder. The surfaces are a balmy 3,000 to 4,500 degrees Kelvin compared to the positively toasty 5,776 Kelvin of the rest of the solar surface. So what causes them? Well, there's two important factors at work in the solar surface. There's convection, and there's magnetism. And just like a boiling pot of water, convection keeps the surface of the sun bubbling over, bringing hot material from the inside of the sun up to the solar surface. Magnetism on the sun's a bit more of a complex affair. Just like the Earth, the sun's thick atmosphere doesn't rotate as a solid body. It rotates quicker at the equator and slower at the poles. And that takes the sun's inherent magnetic field and it winds it up a bit like a dynamo. The stress of this wound-up magnetic field becomes too much and the magnetic field lines erupt from the surface of the sun. These magnetic field lines then cause hurricane-like vortices in the solar surface. Material in these vortices stops being heated via convection, so it cools down relative to the surroundings and a dark sunspot is formed. These sunspots can persist for weeks at a time and they're often accompanied by prominences which are caused by material trapped in the magnetic field that's emanating from the solar surface. But eventually the magnetic stress of these loops becomes too great and the magnetic field snaps back into a more stable configuration. The trapped material is then suddenly freed and it explodes out of the sun in a coronal mass ejection. Now these are the main sources of aurorae that we see on Earth. So if you keep an eye out on websites like spaceweather.com for a spotty sun, these spots might produce a solar flare that can trigger a magnificent geomagnetic spectacle for you here on Earth. Okay, thanks for that answer. Next question is from Beeswax Bob, who asks, If I swim in the sea and the tide goes out, I go out with the tide. Am I being pulled by the water or by the moon? Well, both, really. It kind of depends on how you want to look at it. You're pulled by the moon all the time, and the Earth, and the Sun, and every massive body in the universe. But if we put aside such pedantry, what exactly is it that causes beeswax bobs bathing perambulation? Well, put simply, his motion across the ocean is caused by the friction that sticks him to the water that's flowing out to sea. So he is just pulled out by the water. But that's not the whole story, because we have to consider what a tide is. Not all places in the world have two tides a day. Some places only have one, depending on exactly how the water sloshes around that part of the ocean. Some places even have four tides a day, but this is rare. And this is because the ocean doesn't simply rise and fall as the moon passes overhead. The tide behaves as what's known as a driven harmonic oscillator, which is better known to you and I as a spring. Now, driven harmonic oscillation is exactly the same effect that an opera singer can use to break a wine glass, and it's the same principle that caused the Tacoma Narrows Bridge to collapse. But you'll probably have experienced this effect firsthand if you've ever tried walking with a full cup of tea. A cup of tea naturally wants to slosh around with a particular period, and that's called its resonant frequency. And people typically step in a near multiple of this frequency. And that causes the resonance that makes you spill your tea all over yourself. You can stop this happening by stumbling around like a drunken fool. It's what's known as a random walk. And that avoids setting off this resonance. Incidentally, if you're going to try this at home, please use cold water instead of hot tea, and make sure that no one's watching you. 
But just like a cup of tea, when the tide flows, the moon's gravity is exciting this oceanic spring and setting off whatever harmonic resonance it can, whether it produces one, two, or even four tides a day. And the restoring force which ebbs the tide is simply the Earth's gravity. So depending on how you want to look at it, either you are dragged out to sea by the friction of the water, or you're pulled out to sea as the water relaxes into the Earth's gravity, or you could simply be bouncing up and down in the spring excited by the moon. Either way, the energy that provides the tides ultimately comes from the Earth's rotational inertia. So you're being pulled out to sea by the Earth's spin. The energy from the tides is slowly being transferred from the Earth's spin into the moon's orbit. And that's causing the Earth to spin slower. The day gets longer by about 23 microseconds every year. And it's also causing the moon to spiral away from us. It gets further by about 3.8 centimetres, about an inch and a half every year. But don't worry, the moon won't escape the Earth's orbit before the Earth's oceans are vaporised by the expanding sun. So we can keep bobbing in and out with the tide until then. Well, that's something really interesting to think about next time you go to the beach, I guess. Uh, really good question, and thanks for that answer, Ian. Final question is from Richard Elvin, who says, Given the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, finding that permanently shadowed craters at the moon's poles could be as cold as 35 Kelvin, does this make a superconducting magnet catapult that could launch cargo to Earth a practical proposition? Well, who doesn't fancy the idea of a superconducting railgun on the moon? I certainly do. So I thought I'd do some digging and work out a few numbers. It turns out this idea might just about be technologically possible, but it probably isn't economically sound. Now, the potential problem is that your launch vehicle will be sitting in a deep crater at the lunar pole. It doesn't have a line of sight to Earth. Now, you can probably get away with the orbital dynamics of this. It's going to increase the energy cost a little, but it's probably not going to be by very much. But the more serious problem is that the superconducting magnets stop being superconducting when they reach very high magnetic fields, the kind of magnetic fields we'd need to launch this kind of spacecraft. So your railgun is probably doomed from the start. But I didn't really want to let a little bit of physics like that get in the way of good argument. So I've decided we can build any kind of electromagnetic launcher and site it at the lunar equator. Okay, decision time. What's your launcher going to look like? You need something capable of firing a projectile at the 2.4 kilometres per second that you need to escape the moon's gravity and be captured by the Earth. That's not that hard. The US Navy, and rather surprisingly, the Yugoslavian Military Technology Institute, have both made railguns capable of achieving these velocities. But these fired solid projectiles, not cargo-carrying missiles. Now, a larger projectile can carry more cargo for its weight. Having considered a few options, the best design that I could find was in a 2003 article by Ian McNabb, and he proposes a mile-long electromagnetic cannon which fires projectiles into low-Earth orbit. Now, I adapted this design for superconducting magnets in a lunar launch, and I found that we can probably get about 12 tonnes off the lunar surface in one go. But the actual cargo capacity is going to be a little bit less. These projectiles have to be sufficiently magnetic to accelerate in the launcher. They have to withstand forces of about 200 times the Earth's gravity, and they also have to arrive safely at the Earth's surface. Now, packing in parachutes and that kind of thing, let's say you've got about 5 tonnes of cargo space left. Trouble is, this launcher design would weigh about 3,300 tonnes. Powerful magnets weigh quite a lot, so it costs quite a lot to launch them. It's difficult to put a precise figure on how much it costs to get something to the lunar surface, but a commercial company called Astrobotic is mooting about 1.2 million US dollars per kilogram to transport any cargo to the lunar surface. At those prices, it's going to cost something like 2.6 trillion pounds just to transport the parts of your accelerator to the moon. That's about 5% of the world's total gross domestic product, never mind the cost of putting it together. There's also the question of power. For one launch per day, we'd need about 400 kilowatts to recharge the magnets. Operating a nuclear power station on the moon sounds a little bit too much of a technical nightmare for me, so I went for a simpler device called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. I scaled up the specs from an old Russian surveillance satellite, 
and found that a 400 kilowatt unit probably weighs something like 300 tonnes. Or you could just replace it with 2,400 square metres of solar panels. That only weighs about 38 tonnes. And that can be launched for a bargain price of £30 billion, even if they only work during the day. Now, if you add the cost of putting it together, you're probably talking somewhere in the region of £4 trillion. That's the combined budget of the world's major space agencies for about 130 years. Of course, if they were really trying, like the US did with Apollo in the 60s, they could probably afford it in about 20 years. So it's not beyond the wit of man, but it's technologically difficult. But is it economic? Now, we might consider mining the moon for helium-3, or rare earth elements. Helium-3 currently retails at about £10 million per kilogram. However, the practicalities of transporting a sufficient weight of gas inside a small projectile make the economics of railgun-launched helium-3 impractical. On the other hand, gold, platinum and rhodium each cost about £25,000 per kilogram, which means you could probably make something in the reach of £125 million per payload. Now, these probably exist in fairly localised concentrations on the moon, but you'd probably still have to bash away at several cubic kilometres of rock to get enough for a single payload. Even assuming you've got some kind of self-replicating robots to strip the entire lunar surface for you, you'd probably have to return about 100,000 payloads before you broke even, and that would take centuries. You'd also saturate the world's markets, tripling the amount of metal in circulation in each, and driving the price way down. So, even though it's probably on the verge of technological achievement, it would be pretty difficult to make your money back because of the sheer expense of getting your launch vehicle to the moon. You might be able to get around this by harvesting some of the building materials from the moon itself, but even then it would probably be too expensive. Thankfully, there's another solution. We've been working on a commercial estimate of 1.2 million US dollars per kilogram to launch material to the moon. That money mostly goes in getting stuff off Earth. But in today's money, the Apollo program only cost 1.5 million US dollars per kilogram, for which we can send a man and a hammer and bring him back home to Earth. He'd still struggle to make enough money to make it financially viable, but given that moon rock goes for about £4,000 a gram, he could probably at least pay for his return fare. Thanks for that, Ian. If you want to send in your own questions, you can do so on our website at www.jodcast.net. Thanks for that, Ian. Now we move on to the feedback from our lovely listeners, and we have plenty of feedback in this show, which is always uh, a big plus. Uh, I'm going to start things off with a postcard that, re- that we received uh, from Peter Carr, and on the front of it, you've got uh, a very nice sort of rock formation in the middle of, of the sea, and I'm going to describe what it is in a minute. So the postcard says, Hi, Jodders. The Jodcast continues to be my favourite astronomical podcast. I like the in-depth interviews with real working astronomers. That's us. This rock formation was off the coast at Pambula Beach in southeast New South Wales in Australia. I holidayed there recently and paddled my sea kayak out to it. That sounds very nice. Uh, the only thing you can paddle your sea kayak to in Manchester are canals, and it's not, really, not quite the same thing. Uh, it's not technically a sea kayak if it's in a canal, is it? I mean, the, maybe uh, it's a seaworthy it, kayak. It's okay. Let, let's not <laughs> it, let's not get into the semantics of kayaks. Um, he says I was hoping to see. Uh, Comet Lovejoy, but to no avail. Um, sorry that you didn't get to see that, Peter. Keep up the good work and jod on. Well, thanks a lot from Peter in Melbourne. And we got a couple of emails as well. So, guys. Yeah, we got an email from Gary that says, It was interesting to hear that the SKA would contribute to the SETI project. I hadn't considered that. But you saved the best until last with retasking of New Star. We mentioned uh, the New Star project uh, in a previous... So a couple of months ago, I mentioned uh, accidents with telescopes, including uh, telescopes occasionally accidentally aiming at the sun. John Murrow has 
written uh, another email about uh, another experience that he's had with pointing a telescope at the sun by accident. He says, as a further entry to your list of accidentally pointing telescopes at the sun, I was at Jodrell Bank on a radio astronomy distance learning course in April 2001. We were using the 42-foot telescope for some measurements and instructed it to move from one source to another. Part of the way through the slew, the XY recorder suddenly slewed right along the scale and hit the end stop with some force. For a short while, we thought we had discovered a new, very energetic radio source, and it took a while to realize that the path from one object to the other had probably crossed the sun. No harm done, as the telescope still worked for the next source after we put a new sheet of paper on the XY plotter. Good weekend at Jojo Bank. Still remember it. Thanks for that email, John. It's always nice to hear listener stories about their sort of astronomical adventures. And yeah, just you don't really want any sort of telescope pointing at the sun unless it's a solar telescope. Uh. Or it's otherwise designed to stare at the sun. So on Facebook, Gerald Mackey says the interview with Professor Consolis was terrific, covered a lot of ground. Andrew Horner pointed out typo. The February Jodcast is not available. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for thanks for the comments on the previous episode. Um, glad you enjoyed the Prof Consulis interview, and um, and thanks for pointing out that typo, Andrew. It was a, it was a pretty funny incident. On Twitter, thanks for all of your your mentions, all the new follows uh, that we have on Twitter, all the retweets, and all of our follow Fridays. And thanks to all the people who liked our Facebook page as well. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Uh, all that's left to say is thanks to Professor Chris Lintop and Dr. Baswati Bhattacharya for the interview. The editors were Mark Perver, Monique Henson, Ben Shaw and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time... Shut up!